So as we prepare to, to be taught from God's word, would you hear now um, the word of God from Colossians chapter 1. This morning we're in verses 21 to 23. And as you turn to that or, or see it on the screen and follow along, um, we use the word gospel a lot as Christians. And even in this church, we talk about the good news of the gospel. Some weeks, it's very explicit what the gospel is. And so without stealing too much of Alan's thunder, um, this is the good news of Jesus, what we're about to hear in pretty plain form. Um, so would you hear the word of the Lord? Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And you... who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God for it. And, uh, Alan, we look forward to hearing you teach us this morning. Thank you. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Let me just pray again before we begin the word. Lord, we do thank you for the gospel and all that it means in terms of giving us life and hope and joy and peace in this world that is so confused and so much longing for those things. Um, thank you for your word that you instruct our hearts. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ and the privilege to gather together as your people to worship, to seek you, to rejoice, to encourage one another. May you be honored uh, in our gathering this morning. And Lord, I pray especially for this time of, the, of preaching the word, Lord, that, that your word would speak to the hearts of your people, Lord, and may, may my words just fall away like chaff as the word penetrates into the hearts of all of us who need to hear it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, it seems like there's a new language out there that, um, I'm having to learn. Uh, many of you may be ahead of me, but it's this language that's kind of associated with cell phones and texting. Uh, there's all these new little acronyms, you know, LOL uh, or BTW or IDK that it seems like everybody knows what all those things mean. And, uh, and I have to ask my kids every once in a while, what does this mean? And there's a new one that I've just learned recently. 
Um, it's called FOMO. How many of you know what I mean when I say FOMO? Okay, so most of you are ahead of me, uh, which I'm not surprised at at all, actually. Um, I kind of assume most people are ahead of me. But for those of you who don't know, uh, FOMO is the fear of missing out. The fear of missing out. And it is not just an abbreviation for something, it is a real phenomenon that is happening in our culture and society. It has been written about in the Harvard Business Review. It has been written about in numerous medical journals because there are actual neurological um, effects of this feeling of the fear of missing out that, that has negative psychological effects on people. Um, I didn't research it too deeply, but I will read to you the, the Wikipedia definition of FOMO. FOMO, fear of missing out. Is the feeling of apprehension that one is either not in the know or missing out on information, events, experiences, or life decisions that could make one's life better. FOMO is also associated with a fear of regret which may lead to concerns that one might miss an opportunity for social interaction or a novel experience or a memorable event or a profitable investment. It is characterized by a desire to stay continually connected with what others are doing and can be described as the fear that deciding not to participate is the wrong choice. FOMO could result from not knowing about a conversation, missing a TV show, not attending a wedding or a party. It goes on to talk about how smartphones contribute to FOMO because smartphones enable people to remain in contact with their social and professional network continuously and this may result in compulsive checking for status updates and messages for fear of missing an opportunity. Do you see people checking their phones all the time? Do you have that, that experience? I, I feel like I do, I experience this, that I look at my phone more often than I should for this fear of something that I need to know that if I haven't checked my phone in the last five minutes, I might have missed it. Um, so anyway, we have this fear of missing out as a cultural phenomenon. And in this passage that we're looking at today, Paul wants to make sure that we don't miss out on the most important thing of all. The most important thing of all. It reminds me of another passage in, in Mark's gospel, which kind of a passage we don't talk about very often, but there's a little story of, of Jesus in the boat. 
with his disciples. And the disciples are kind of getting all in a kerfuffle about the fact that they, they didn't bring enough bread on this trip. And, um, and Jesus kind of rebukes them, goes into this very interesting uh, series of questions, which I won't rehearse here, but basically rebukes the disciples for being worried about what they're going to have for lunch while the most important thing in the history of the universe is happening right before their very eyes. And that's kind of what this passage is about today. That Paul wants to focus our attention on the most important thing. Because we tend to get distracted with all these other things like a party or an email or a viral video and miss out on the things that are, that are really important. The, the letter to the Colossians is, is really a beautiful and amazing thing. <clears throat> Paul, in what we've seen so far, what Stephen has preached on, um, Paul, you know, really spends a, a lot of time describing who Jesus is and what he has done um, and really describes that in, the, in terms that are um, uh, panoramic in terms of its connection to all that God has done in the unfolding of history. Um, he refers back to creation a couple of times. Um, if you look in verses um, 6 and 10, he says, um, he's talking about the, the word of truth, the gospel. And he says, verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. And those words bearing fruit and increasing are harken back to the creation, back to Genesis chapter one, when God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And, and so Paul is going back and saying, the gospel is now doing what Adam and Eve were supposed to do in terms of bringing the glory of God to the world, to humanity. We see the same kind of language in verse 10. So Paul is connecting Jesus to Adam and Eve. Um, he then goes on in verses 15 to 20, gives us this magnificent description of the, the glory and the majesty of who Jesus is um, over this new creation. As Jesus is inaugurating the new creation into the world. Um, I'm just going to read that again because it is powerful and it does it serves as kind of the backdrop for what we're looking at today um, so starting with verse 15 of chapter 1 paul says he is the image of the invisible god right remember adam and eve were created in god's image jesus is the image for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him 
and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. As Stephen pointed out last week, that, that, that he was the, he, Jesus was the beginning of this new creation. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Where did the fullness, where did the, where did the presence of God dwell in the Old Testament? In the temple, right? So even here, Paul is, is reminding us that Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the place where God and man come together on earth. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Jesus was the lamb upon the altar as well as the temple itself. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, man, this is really one of the most powerful, beautiful declarations of, of who Jesus was and is. Um, a lot of commentators believe this actually was a hymn used in the early church, that these, that these words were repeated regularly as, as believers come, came together. Um, and it's all about what Jesus has done uh, in his coming, what he has accomplished uh, in the world in this universal scope of, of bringing creation back to where it's supposed to be. And then we get to our passage, we get to verse 21, <clears throat> and Paul's, and in the English Standard Version, ESV, it begins, and you, and you. Because all this, you know, up until now, we've been hearing about all this, all about Jesus, about Jesus, about Jesus, which is, of course, is where we need to start, right? Which is the most important. But now Paul wants to turn and say, and you, what does all this mean for you? What does all this mean for us as God's people? So that's why the sermon is titled, And You. It's not that it's not about Jesus because it's all about Jesus, but it's really about what Jesus does for us and our response. And Paul basically makes three points. So the three points of the sermon, number one, Jesus has reconciled us. He has, he has moved us from a place of alienation, hostility and evil to a place of holiness, blamelessness and being above reproach before him. That's number one. That's what Jesus did. Number two, how he did it. He did this in his body of flesh by his death. And the third point, now what? He did this so that we would live our lives loving others and trusting 
God because of all he has done and looking forward in hope of all that he will do. Faith, hope, and love. So first, what has God done through Jesus? Well, it says he has reconciled us with God. He's moved us from this place of alienation to this place of holiness and blamelessness. Um, Paul describes as being alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And I think it's kind of Stephen alluded to as we, you know, read through the prayer of confession. Um, this being called sinful and hostile to God, we kind of take offense at that sometimes, you know? It's like, I'm not really hostile to God. You know, I, I'm... I'm not sure I like that description. Um, you know, we say, of course, there are, of course, there are really bad people out there. You know, we are there, there are the evil folks out there, the Hitlers and the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But most people aren't that bad, right? I don't, I, look at my, I'm not that, I haven't murdered anybody, you know, I haven't done all these terrible things. But the Bible is clear that none of us are what we should be, what we were created to be. Um, you know, in Romans 3.23, many of you probably know the verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All of us fall short of, of the glory of God. The God gave us his glory. We're supposed to live in a way that shows his glory. And we fall short. Jesus, you know, in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he, he uh, made it clear that it's not just doing evil deeds that is offensive to God and, and killing us, even thinking about those things, right? Even pondering those evil deeds in our heart um, is wrong. So I think ultimately, you know, all of us, when we are really honest with ourselves, we do know the sinfulness of our hearts. We know our lack of, of loving, of love towards those around us, our own selfishness, our pride. If somebody says something against us, we immediately get defensive and try to defend our, our pride and integrity. We all know that we are too often easily angered and treat Harshly, those who don't deserve it. And if we don't have an awareness of our sinfulness, I think it's because we compare ourselves to other people who are also sinners. And then we say, oh, well, I'm not so bad compared to so-and-so. When in fact, God's standards are God's standards, right? And not our own. So, but the point here, actually, I'm kind of getting beside myself, that the point that Paul is making here is that God has taken us out of that position. He's removed us from this place of alienation and hostility, and he's transformed us to a new position, to this new place of holiness and blamelessness and being above reproach before him he has made us a new creation. He has given us newness of life. 
And Paul is telling us here this amazing truth that if you are in Christ, God has made you into something that you weren't before. You're new. You're different. Your reality is a different reality than you had apart from Christ. Paul, earlier in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Our citizenship has been changed. It's like we have a new passport, we have a new birth certificate. We belong in a different world than we were first born into. He has delivered us. We used to live in a domain of darkness, and now we live in the kingdom of his beloved son. It's an amazing thing. That's point number one. That's what God has done in those who are in Christ. The second thing Paul talks about is how it happened. And he says, he uses the words, in his body of flesh, by his death. You know, what, what sets the gospel apart from all other religions is that the story of the Bible is that God comes for us. God comes and gets us. Whereas the other religions of the world have a, have a great, have a teacher that, that leads the way, that tries to show the way to how to find God. You know, in Islam, Muhammad was, you know, the great prophet who is showing people how to make it to Allah, what the right things to do to get there. And the Buddha, you know, was a great teacher who was leading the way and showing people how to become one with the universe, whatever it is exactly that... I don't mean to be disrespectful, but the point being that, that the gospel is, is different than that completely. Jesus did not come primarily as a teacher to teach us how to find God. Jesus came as God himself to rescue us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Because we, we don't need a teacher. We need a savior. We don't need a teacher. We don't need a guide to lead us down the right path. We need a rescuer who will save us from the dire condition of lostness that we are in. So what makes the gospel different from all the other religions is that God came for us. God came for us. God, in the form of Jesus, got dirty. He came and lived among us and sweat and bled. He slept on the ground with rocks poking in his back and in the back of his head. He got hungry. He experienced disappointment. He experienced what it feels like to be betrayed by your friends and those who love you. That's what 
God did in the coming of Jesus. He came in the flesh. It's very different from the creation, you know. When God created the world, he spoke and it just happened, right? I mean, that's the amazing thing. God said, let there be light and there was light. And let there be all the other things of creation and it just happened. God said the word and it happened. But when it came to salvation, when it came to taking away our sinfulness, our, our guilt, God didn't just say the word. He didn't just speak and say, it's just okay. I'm just gonna forget about it. God didn't just speak and our guilt was just disappeared, just like he spoke and the world appeared. For some reason, he didn't choose to, to do it that way. You know, why didn't God just say, okay, we got this sin problem out there. I'm gonna just speak and it's going to be over with, right? It's the all-powerful God spoke the bazillions of stars and planets into being. He just spoke and it happened. When it came to solving the problem of broken humanity, he didn't just speak and say, it's all gone. Instead, he came and he lived. He suffered and died among us, in front of us, for us. And he came because he had to take upon himself the penalty that we deserved. Because forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Where there is an offense, someone has to pay. It's just the way it works. Um, you know, if I drove up, drove over here this morning, if when I was parking my car, if I had crashed my car into yours, there's a problem there, right? You now have a car that's been crashed, right? Now you may forgive me, right? You may forgive me and you may not hold me responsible. You may say, okay, Alan, I'm not, that's okay. I'm gonna let it go, right? I'm off the hook, but you have to pay. Forgiveness costs you because somebody has to pay. There's, a, there's an offense, there's something has been broken. And so, so the cost has to be paid somewhere or there is no order and justice and rightness in the universe, okay? Where there is sin, there is a penalty. 
there can no be there cannot be such a thing as justice if there is no consequence for sin if there's no consequence for sin then God is not just and we should not call him that but God is just and so there has to be consequence for sin and the story of the gospel the message of the gospel is that is that God took the consequences upon himself God paid the price. God took the penalty that we deserved in the body of Jesus Christ. He gave Jesus what we deserved and he gave us what Jesus deserved, right? Jesus lived a perfect sinful life. He deserved to be declared righteous and holy in in the presence of God. But he gave that to us through the death of Jesus. That's the gospel, that in Jesus, if you, if you put your life in Jesus' hands, if you put your trust and your hope and your faith in Jesus, that he transfers to you that cleanness, that clean slate through the, the, the penalty that he paid on the cross for us. That's what the gospel is all about. And the last thing that Paul gets to is the, is the what now, you know, what about it? And the, and the what now is that we're called to walk in this new reality. We've been transferred to a new kingdom and we're called to, to live in that, to walk in that. N.T. Wright, theologian from Britain, he says, Christ in his death and resurrection has achieved the renewal and reconciliation of the cosmos, Right? Jesus, what Jesus did changed the order of everything. This, this cosmological transformation of the world was accomplished in the coming of Jesus. And then N.T. Wright goes on to say, now that needs to be implemented by you. Now that needs to be implemented by you. He, he uh, goes on to make this Comparison to a, a music composer. Sorry, Javier just left. Uh, but he says, you know, a composer creates a, a concert, a composition, a musical piece, a beautiful musical piece. It's a, it's a work, it's an achievement. But then musicians have to go out and, and implement it, Right? A great concert is not a great concert if it's on a piece of paper. It's implemented by the musicians. He also makes or he makes the, the comparison. Oh, back to N.T. Wright, I'm borrowing from N.T. Wright all of this. No plagiarism. Um, he says it's similar to, uh, you know, to a scientist may discover a cure for a, a, a disease. But then doctors in the medical world has to take that discovery and implemented, right? So he says, Jesus has accomplished the, the, the beginning of the new creation. He has changed the order of the world. He's provided a way for, for people to be in a right relationship with God. 
And he calls us now to be the ones who implement that, who take that new creation out into the world. How do we do that? And Paul's answer, I think, is by living lives of faith, hope, and love. Living lives of faith, hope, and love. Paul, Paul loves those words, faith, hope, and love. You all probably know them if, you're, if you've been around Christian circles. You know Paul famously in 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But these three things, faith, hope, and love. And my, my simplistic understanding of how those three relate, it's, I'm sure books could be written, but... In a very simplistic sense, faith, I believe, is, in this context, it is backward-looking. We look back on what Jesus has done, has accomplished, okay? And we, we see it, we believe it, we hang on to that, okay? We find our life in what Jesus has done. Hope is forward-looking, right? We're looking forward to God fulfilling what he has promised, right? We're looking forward to what is yet to come. So we have hope, we have lives of hope, no matter how bad things are in this world, right? No matter what disappointments, what suffering, what you know, jobs we've lost, what illness we may have, what people have died that we loved, we, can, we press on because we have hope that Jesus has given us. And then love. Paul says the greatest of these is love. Love is what we do right now, right? Faith looks back on what Jesus has done. Hope looks forward to what Jesus will do. Love is what are we going to do about that right now? How do you and I express our faith and our hope? It's through love. It's through loving one another is through loving God. <clears throat> I think I'm running over time, so I'm gonna try to land the plane. Um, so just a couple final words. The. We are called as people to lives of faith, hope, and love. But maybe more importantly than that, we're called as a church to those things. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, he created the church. The, the, the new creation is the, is the church. It is the body of Christ. It is the people of God. We are the heart and soul of this new creation thing. And it is as we live together, as we serve together, as we, as we do life together, that is where the world can look at us and see faith and hope and love. That's how we bring the message, I believe, is through a church that is actively demonstrating those things. So I, without going into a long diatribe. I just, that's my prayer for us as a church. You know, we're 
we're, we're small. We're in this big the city of Salem, and here we are, 30 people this morning. But God's called us to be the vessel through which the new creation is birthed into Salem. Not that it's never been here, but it, this is an ongoing thing. God is, you know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom is coming. It's coming to Salem, and it's coming through us. That's what our call is. That's for the church. My final word is, you know, we started this morning talking about FOMO, the fear of missing out. And Paul's message to the Colossians really is that you should have a fear of missing out. You should have a fear of missing out. Fear is a good thing. But it's not a fear of missing out on a, an email or a viral video or a text. You should have a fear of missing out on the most important thing that's happened in the history of the universe, which is the coming of Jesus into this world and the, and the ushering in of his kingdom. Don't miss out on that. Don't miss out on that. That's what Paul's message is. Don't miss out. better stop there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel and so much more that could be said than what I have said here today, Lord, but we declare together as followers of Jesus that, Lord, you are our hope. We put our our faith in you. We believe in all that you have done and, and what you have accomplished. And because of that, we have hope for the future. And because of that, we can live today lives of love and sacrifice, not worrying about who's going to take care of us tomorrow because we know that you will be there to take care of us tomorrow. So Lord, speak to our hearts. May the, may the words of the gospel come alive in our hearts today and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.